If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of James, chapter number 1. James, chapter 1. We'll consider together verses 26 and 27. This is Compassion Sunday, a special Sunday for us when we invite you to uh, participate, to sponsor children through the Ministry of Compassion International. So there are many Sunday sermons, in fact, there are many biblical texts, for which the application is rather passive. Consider Jesus. Meditate deeply on the things of Christ. Treasure the Lord Jesus Christ in all your hearts. So many passages and so many sermons are just intended as an invitation that you would bask in the glory of our God and the goodness of his son, Jesus Christ. We will be basking in his glory this morning, but I want you to know that the response is far more active than those cases. In fact, we're going to provide you with an opportunity, an outlet for making application of the very text that is before us here this morning. It is an incredible honor to be a part of a congregation where adoption and orphan care are such a critical part of the life of our church. There is a steady stream of foster care children who come through our body loved on well by the many families of our church. There is a host of adopted children and yet a, a whole other group of those who are awaiting placements in their homes. It's just an exciting thing to be able to be a part of, to watch God move in these remarkable ways and these windows of time to invest in the well-being, spiritual and physical well-being of the children entrusted to our care. Often in discussing adoption and foster care specifically, we note, and rightly so, that not everyone, for obvious reasons, can adopt, and not everyone can even be a part of the foster care system or uh, more demanding uh, elements of ministering to the needs of the least of these among us. Not everyone can do some things, but everyone can do something. This passage invites us into the ministry of meeting the needs of the least of these, as Jesus describes them, in, in a rather emphatic way. I have been anxious to have the opportunity to be before you and to share with you some good news from our home. And uh, many of you have been praying for us and praying earnestly for us when we came here, I came here to be your pastor three years ago now. We already had in our care um, our beau, our youngest. You've probably seen him around church, probably getting into something he wasn't supposed to be into or tearing up something or probably in trouble on some level. If he wasn't, he was preparing for that, right? He came to us from the labor and delivery of the hospital where he was born and they brought him into our home to social workers, delivered him. I was there by myself. Brandy was at work and just sat him there on the island in our kitchen. I will never forget it. And I thought, what am I? Brandy was at work a 12-hour shift. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with this till she gets home from work, you know? <laughs> and uh, at the time, it was just a temporary thing. At least that's what we thought. And here we are three and a half years later after all the pains and agonies and frustrations of working with Child Protective Services and the mess that that system is. And so on Friday night, this is the first time anything like this has happened, we, we invited and were able to host in our home his biological mother and grandmother. And on what was a very difficult day for their family uh, was a glorious day for ours as she signed to voluntarily surrender her parental rights so that we could finally 
be able to adopt him forever. So a couple of things. I want us to just celebrate God's faithfulness in answering prayer. Oftentimes when something comes to pass, we've prayed earnestly for, we're quickly dismissive of how God's hand has been at work in that process. I cannot tell you how we've prayed. And I know that so many of you have been faithful to pray as well. And I wanted to say thank you to you, but most especially thank the Lord for the way that he's worked in this process. And then to invite you to be in prayer for a biological family that will wrestle through these kinds of things. The mutual agreement of our two families was that this is in his best interest. And ultimately his best interest is what matters the most. So pray for them. There seems to be some progress in a Godward direction there that we were able to celebrate and encourage as we met together. So pray that God would continue to be at work there. So I wanted to share that exciting news with you, the way the Lord has been worked this week even in, in our home with regards to the very principles that James is calling us to in our passage. James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. The Bible says here, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. What James says here in such clear and practical terminology is built upon the theological foundation established in the passage that comes before and even the texts that come after. James is insistent again and again and again that faith without works is dead. That if your measure of faith isn't such that it moves you to the transformation of your life, if your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ has not radically changed your life, there is no deficiency in the gospel. What's deficient is your faith. Now, we like to say in sort of this cavalier way, it's not the size of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. And that is right. But what James is ultimately distinguishing between here is a knowledge of the gospel as opposed to a deep and abiding confidence in the power of the gospel to save that again radically transforms the human heart. James seems to be needling at the notion that our problem is not that we don't know what we ought to do. Our problem is that we do not do what we know we ought to do. Look at verse 22. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is where he's building up to this idea. And in many ways, the verses we read earlier, verses 26 and 27, are the answers to the predicament presented in verse 22. Don't be a mere hearer of the word, but a doer, actively doing, actively making application of what you discover as you read the Word of God. You do understand that when you read the Bible, there is the expectation that we would respond to this. And we've mastered this in our circle, right? We huddle together in what we call Bible studies, and we come away from our informational meeting 
confident that somehow we've learned more about the biblical text, we've learned more about who God is, and that somehow enhances or improves our life. And there's a measure of truth to that. But the reality is, unless or until we live differently, we are moved in our innermost by the discoveries we have made in the Word of God, we have come short of what God intends for us to do with the living Word of God. I'm convinced that we often soothe the guilt of conscience, guilty at the absence of genuine obedience by increasing our level of insight or information, all the while neglecting the intent of God's word to radically transform one's life. James warns us that to do this is to deceive ourselves. How many times have you heard a person introduced and something was to be said about their devotion and they would say, he or she knows all about the Bible. He knows what's in that book. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But there's a significant difference between knowledge and wisdom as they're distinguished in the Bible. Knowledge is information. But wisdom is the application of that information in real, tangible, practical ways. That's what James is inviting us to. Not just that we would know but that we would do something about what we know. If you've ever been a child or raised children, that pretty much covers all of us. You've either been asked or asked the question, do you not know better? Well, that's a dumb question because we always know typically when that question is asked. And, and, then, and then my daddy would do this. Y'all think this is cruel. Y'all think bad of my daddy. He would say, are you ignorant? And you cannot win that question. Because if you say yes, then he says, no, you're not. And that's what makes me so mad. If you, if you say no, well, then why don't you do better than what you're doing at the, at, at the moment? Why don't you do better? Our issue, again, is the failure to put into practice to make real application of what we're discovering of the character of our God. James says to come short of that is a futile, useless, mindless endeavor. It does you no benefit. It is no good. It is false and defiled religion. Verse 23 continues, because if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Again and again and again in the New Testament, the, the intent of the author is to remind us of the principles of the gospel, to remind us of the message of the gospel and its implications in all of our lives. Understand that these 27 books are written to believing people. They have believed that God has looked upon us with such love and affection that he would send his only begotten son, that Jesus, the son of God, would clothe himself in flesh, that he would walk among us without sin, bearing with all of the agonies and indignities of life in the here and now, that he would die as our substitute on the cross, the just one given over for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The one who knew no sin, becoming there at the cross, sin for us that we might become the righteousness of our God. Dead by 
Roman crucifixion, buried in a borrowed grave, and raised again three days later. Even at this moment, the message of the gospel tells us that positioned at the right hand of God, that position of great power, with nail-scarred hands, he beckons that we would repent of our sin and come to him. This was the message they held in their hearts. And yet God saw fit again and again and again to reinforce the preaching of that message, to fan the gospel flame in the hearts of every believer, generation by generation, century by century, lest we forget. Brothers and sisters, hold fast to the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints and its implications, its application in your personal life. Now, in order to begin to give us some gauge by which we can measure the authenticity of our faith, James describes essentially three metrics, three measures to see that we are in the active pursuit of sincere faith, that we are adequately walking worthy of the call with which we're called. Verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, then, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James is clearly concerned in the letter that is the book of James with how we control our tongues. He speaks of this tiny member within our body that possesses such incredible power. He likens it to bits in the mouths of horses and the rudder that steers the great ship. And charges that we would consider how large a forest, a small fire, ignites. He seems somewhat pessimistic in the observation that no man can tame the tongue. Nevertheless, he invites us to do what seems or feels the impossible. Now, in reality, James is not concerned, nor are other biblical authors, with, with parsing everything that we say. But with the reality that what we say with our mouths is a true overflow, it is a reflection of who we are in our heart. The things that you say, and as bad as I hate to admit it, my wife is not here, so this is a plus, the tone with which you say it matters. Not so much because we're parsing every letter, but because you're speaking out of the overflow of your heart. James is often referred to as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. It's like Proverbs in the way it communicates truth. And in wisdom literature, not only is there a high value placed on the way we tame or control the tongue because the heart speaks from the overflow of the heart, the, the way we tame the tongue also becomes in many ways representative in wisdom literature of the whole of how we live our life. So James is stating in the broadest sense that all of our life should be impacted by the power of the gospel. No one can be touched in a saving way by the power of Jesus without being forever changed by that encounter. The faith that saves your soul from hell will sanctify your life in the here and now. This is just a biblical reality. The Bible knows nothing of the distinctions that we often make between Jesus becoming our Savior and Jesus becoming our Lord. I don't know where you make any sense of that whatsoever. The faith that saves, sustains, and sanctifies us. The faith that saves, keeps us. The faith that saves, shapes, and molds our life. It makes us over 
into the image and the likeness of our Savior Jesus so that the patterns of your life, your conduct, is no longer shaped by your environment or the culture around you or your upbringing or influences that might come to bear from other sources. Your conduct, your patterns of life are now transformed. They are now shaped by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why it is a natural thing that orphan care would be a part of the life of any Bible-believing church. Because we have been adopted by God. You understand that Jesus didn't come from where we come from. He didn't look like we look, at least for most of us. We were sons of the devil. And yet, by gospel grace, he has made us his own. We have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Oughtn't our lives to look like a reflection of the grace and mercy that God has shown toward us. So in some practical ways, your life should be shaped by the gospel. Verse 27 says that in some ministerial ways, our lives should be shaped by the message of the gospel. James says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here it seems that widows and orphans stand for those who have no capacity for the repayment of your good deed. In other words, the ministry to widows and orphans that James has in view can only be motivated by a love for Jesus and a desire to emulate his willingness to serve. Remember, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. It was Jesus, the only one worthy of worship and praise. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus who hung the earth on its axis and fashioned us even as we are, who took the towel and basin and stooped to wash the feet of the very disciple who would betray him hours later. This is the pattern of service and ministry that our Savior has called us to. James says, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I just want to note sort of a couple of sidebars here. I'm very encouraged at the direction of widow ministry within our deacon body here. And if you're a deacon listening, be encouraged and keep it up. Foster and strengthen the relationships that you're making with the widows within our body. Continue to be of encouragement to them. It doesn't always have to be this big boom, this gift, this overly spiritual kind of encounter. Sometimes the ministry of presence and prayer is the thing they need the most just to be there. Making yourself available is of incredible value in ministering to widows, and I would add the same is true for littles in a time of need as well. There's great opportunity, I think, here in our encouragement to minister to orphans. I think we can broaden the terminology of, of orphans and draw application into other areas. Jesus loves the little children of the world, and the church of Jesus Christ ought to love the little children of the world as well. 
There has been so much conversation in recent years about disadvantaged and oppressed people. I don't discount those things. Those are observations in reality. But I, I can identify for you the most disadvantaged demographic group of people in the world today. And this is, this is not exclusive to other parts of the world. In fact, these observations may be better specific to our current culture. The single most disadvantaged, the single most oppressed demographic of people in the American society today are children from the moment of their conception until they graduate high school. And you wonder, listen, I, and I get weary with all of the conjecture about recent generations and sort of circling the drain. And I realize you can look out and you can be concerned, but I'm going to tell you how they got like that. Because the sorry mamas and daddies who didn't hold fast to Jesus, didn't hold fast to one another, and didn't make the investment of time that was necessary along the way. Now, I get their exceptions to that, but far more often than not, that is the reality in their experience. There are a world of children around us in desperate need of a godly investment, a godly man or woman that takes interest in their life, seeing them give their hearts to Jesus and walk with him for all their days. This may sound sort of a mean-spirited thing to say, but there are moments for me when as a father who has an interest in those children who are most disadvantaged, that Jesus had said there is coming a day when the one who harms the least of these, it would be better for him if a millstone was hung about his neck and he was tossed into the sea. It may seem a strange thing to take comfort in such a statement, but when you observe some of the things that happen around and happen to children in our society, it is an apt conclusion that we would take some comfort in the reality that one day justice will be served. So this is another way. This morning's Compassion Sunday and the invitation to child sponsorship is just an entry-level way for you to connect with the least of these. Again, Jesus loves the little children of the world, and so too to Jesus' people. An entry-level way of connecting in a meaningful way with children among the nations. In our specific example, in the nation of Uganda, establishing a relationship there, investing and encouraging through letters and pictures, and hopefully one day even in a personal contact, that a way might be made for them that they would know the message of the gospel, that a way might be made for them that they would experience the lift that can come with education, that they might experience adequate provision for their food needs and otherwise that might arise within their life. Now, I would note here there's incredible opportunity for us with regards to discipling our own children. This is an opportunity for you to disciple your children in contentment and gratitude. If, if you have change, if you have spare change on your dresser, you are wealthier than 95% of the world's population. Our children live with such a level of affluence and comfort. They've, they've no way of understanding how grateful they ought to be, nor have they any way of understanding how content they ought to be, nor have they any way of understanding how much of what they have is altogether unnecessary in their life. This is an opportunity to make a discipleship investment in them as they help and participate in the writing of letters and the furthering of relationships and bonds within sponsorship. This is a way, in my estimation, of helping your children and I hope helping many adults to foster a heart for the nations. This is a good entry-level missions step. 
what I would ultimately hope is that all of our body would be actively participating on some level in reaching the nations with the message of the gospel. This child sponsorship opportunity is a good first step. It's a good floor for participation in the advancement of the gospel, even among the nations. It's, it's a very difficult thing for children. I think the same is true for adults to really understand that that globe they study in their elementary and high school geography classes really does represent people that are altogether different from us. Eight billion people, all of which need the message of the gospel until they've established a meaningful relationship with someone from outside of their cultural context or put their boots on the ground in a setting unlike their own. It remains this abstract concept. It really is a beneficial thing for, for them to have this kind of connection to begin to foster a heart for the nations. There's opportunity here for discipling them, directing them, and celebrating with them the value of the local church. I met with the leadership of Compassion International for about a week last November and was able to spend some time with their leadership and kind of get a better handle on who they were. There are some sponsorship ministries out there that I would not have brought before you as a congregation. I think the tipping point for me was the involvement of the local church in Compassion International Ministry. Independent of the local church, Compassion really doesn't have a lot going on. In fact, we might say within our own denominational structure, apart from the local church, the IMB, the North American Mission Board, they don't have anything going on. This is where it's at. This is where missionaries come from. We are who sends missionaries, not these entities that we've uh, chosen to use to, to pool our cooperating efforts. It is the local church. Independent of the local church, we've no authority in any of these acts of ministry. It is the church that God has ordained as the means through which the message of the gospel would be advanced in all the world. So what you're doing in sponsorship is you're equipping and enabling local assemblies like ours in their respective communities to minister to the needs of children right there in their own backyard. So there's tremendous opportunity for discipleship in these areas. I'm going to invite a friend to come and to share. We're privileged to have Daniel with us this morning. Daniel is himself a compassion kid, or he used to be a compassion kid. He's all grown up now. Daniel's going to come. Daniel is from Kenya, where he was connected with Compassion International, is going to share with us about some of his experiences there. Y'all thank Daniel for being with us this morning. So Daniel, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and, and uh, just an intro to Compassion and the impact that it's had in your life. Thank you so much. My name is Daniel. I'm married to one beautiful wife, and we have a four-year-old girl. Her name is Imara. She keeps me young. Uh, we live in Phoenix, Arizona. I get to do these things where I travel with compassion and share my story of how compassion changed my life. So I look back um, more than 30 years ago, you know, in the slums of Nairobi. My mom was 14 years old when she gave birth to me. And so for me, the story of poverty actually continued there, didn't begin there. My grandmother was poor and uh, we struggled to make a living. 
And just want to paint a picture for you to show you what life used to be back then. We lived in a 10 by 10 feet house made of tin. Uh, and there were so many others like those in the slums. Uh, we didn't have meals every day. I know for us, the most important meal was dinner. And then for breakfast or lunch, you had to just trust and, and hope that God would provide that for you. And then at the age of seven, I was about to go to school. And then my mom looked at me and told me, Daniel, I'm sorry, I don't have the tuition to take you to school. For me, from my young age, I knew education would open doors that would change my life. And so I was trusting that I would be able to go to school. And now here I was wondering what's going to happen to my life. But God is so faithful. A couple months down the line, uh, a pastor and a social worker came knocking to our door, interviewed my mom, and I remember my mom telling me, hey, Daniel, I want you to start going to this church. I was so excited because, for one, I knew that church had a lot of food, you know. And as a kid growing up without food, I, I wanted to be anywhere that there was free food, you know. Uh, just mention food and I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Even today, just talk about food, I'll be there. Uh, <laughs> I was so excited. Uh, my first day, I ate three plates, and I wanted to take more and take it back with me. But I realized the compassion program was more than food. Uh, one, they told us you're going to get a sponsor, a sponsor family or a sponsor that will change your life and help you to go to school. So finally, I was so excited that my dream to go to school would come to fruition. A family from Oregon, Betty and Boyd Lassen, were going to be my sponsors. I remember the first picture, it was Betty and Boyd and their dog, and they were somewhere in the mountains, and now I know that was Mount Hood. They were in blue jeans and, you know, a white tee, and I know blue jeans is as American as you can get, <laughs> right? Um, Betty and Boyd, they sponsored me for 14 years, and I want to share some of the impact that they had through their sponsorship. It's because of their sponsorship that I started going to school. I remember that day receiving my new uniform, a new pair of shoes, a backpack, and I knew that I could do anything that I wanted to do because of their support. They would write to me and tell me, hey, Daniel, we love you and we're praying for you. And then they would say, hey, Daniel, Jesus loves you and we want you to know him. And then they would also write to me and ask me about my schooling. Of course, they were paying for my tuition. How are you doing in school? What grades did you get? And I hated that question because I wasn't the best student. And so uh, I kept working hard. I remember the first year, I still got E's, and I was so disappointed. And I thought they were going to stop sponsoring me. But they kept asking me and encouraging me and saying, hey, you, 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 if you work hard, you can do better. And I remember the first time Pastor I got always, I was so excited. I was waiting for the next round of us to write letters and send them my report card so that they can see I got A's. And I knew that now they're, gonna, they're not going to stop sponsoring me. <laughs> um, now, I look back, more than 14, more than 20, more than, more than 30 years, they've been part of my life. 
They stopped sponsoring me when I was about to go to college, but they actually sent me my first laptop when I went to college, and they wanted me to continue thriving and become whoever God wanted me to be. I remember in one of their letters writing and saying, hey, we'll pray that you find a godly wife one day and have a beautiful family, and I never thought that would happen. And one day, when I moved to the U.S. and went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and then later got married, Betty and Boyd walked me down the aisle, and we were just dancing, and they were like my dad and my mom at that moment. And they actually, I call them dad and mom because of the impact they've had in my life. Thank you. Okay. But also, because of their sponsorship, I got to have the best gift ever. My family got to get the best gift ever. My dad became a pastor at my mom's burial when our pastor at the Compassion Program was preaching. Mm. In this dark moment that our family faced, my dad got to find hope and faith in Jesus' name. Now he's in an itinerary pastor and has helped plant so many churches in other slums in Kenya. My sister is married to a local pastor and they're faithfully preaching the gospel in a place called Naivasha in Kenya. For me, I never wanted to be a pastor. I remember actually God called me to be a pastor and I was like, no, pastor, no, 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 no. All the pastors I knew were poor. I didn't want to become poor. I was about to go to college. I'm like, God, we have a deal. We've been working so hard, all my A's. Um, <laughs> but I know now that God will always provide for whatever he calls you to do. Uh, it may not look the way you want it to look, but he will provide. God opened a door for me to go to seminary so that I can be equipped to be able to do the work that I do today. I wanted to become a... Uh, a church planter, but God turned my life around when I went to Moody Bible, and I wanted to serve the nations and help other people to go to the nations and preach the gospel. Now I get to live in Arizona, where I work at a Christian college, mobilizing young people to serve our nations that are across our street, and also to go across the world and bring the gospel to other nations and partner uh, with other churches all over the world. I look back. <laughs> Thank you. I look back today and I'm so humbled by what God has done in my life. You know, a family saw a picture of me. They didn't know what that would end up to become. Now they're my family. Like strangers now are united because of Jesus. Um, I look back at this kid that was born out of wedlock, uh, a kid that doubted himself. And now here I am today, you know. I know Jesus, he's my hope. And I know that even if everything is taken away from me, I have this eternal gift that one day I will see Jesus, the hope of all hope. Amen. Amen. And so I pray for you guys as you get into this partnership with Compassion International, as you sponsor these kids, that these kids, their families and their community and their church will experience this everlasting joy and everlasting hope in Jesus Christ. But the Lord God use you guys. I'll be praying for you, and I can't wait to hear stories of what God does in Uganda. Uh, and I believe, like Pastor, that the church, we are the ones that the world 
desperately wants to see uh, a reflection of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done in us. God wrote a new story in my life, and he can do the same to other people who need it. Amen. 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 You guys thank Daniel for being here. So let's think for just a moment in terms of the broader application. Obviously, there is the specific invitation to partner with Compassion and Child Sponsorship. And uh, Pastor Jason will come in a few moments and he'll give you some more specifics about that. You can find all the information that you need as well in the lobby at the booths that are set up there. The essence of what James is calling us to do is to be Jesus's people to be his hands and his feet, to love like Jesus loves because we have been loved by Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. And we love our neighbors and the nations because he first loved us and has birthed in our heart this passion for the things for which our God is passionate. Now, it, it, this should not be the ceiling for engagement with the nations, but it's a great place to start. And this should not be the ceiling for you in terms of ministering to the needs of the least of these, but it can be a great way to start. This is not the only way of connecting with the nations, but for those of you who may be connected, it's a great way to supplement and to have a point of influence, a partnership in the gospel, perhaps in a part of the world that God has given you a great heart for, or perhaps in a part of the world that you're altogether unfamiliar with. It's not the fix-all, right? And I want you to be certain that, that your priorities are well-oriented as you enter into this sponsorship, right? Like our goal as a body is not to alleviate poverty in all the world. It's just not. But that doesn't mean that we don't minister to the needs that may arise within our proximity or even among the nations as a means of opening doors that the gospel would be advanced. That's priority number one. And the only thing Jesus has authorized and guaranteed we'd be successful in doing, the advancement of his kingdom across the street and around the world, being all things to all people, that doors might be open, that we might leverage influence, what he has entrusted to us, to whom much is given, much is required. And here's a little window of opportunity to brighten the lives of young people far and wide. You know, I came away from that meeting with Compassion's People last November not only encouraged at the work that they were doing, but curious as to the ways that we might be an influential force in the lives of young people in our own community. And I really hope that those things begin to happen as God moves your hearts as a congregation to meet the needs of people right there in your circle of influence. Let us be Jesus' people, his hands and feet, walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of the gospel that has called us and saved us as believers. God, I pray now for those who are perhaps here without saving faith. God, there's never been a moment in time in their life when they repented of sin and came to trust Jesus for forgiveness and grace that can only be found in him. There's never been a point in time when they would have acknowledged, Lord, that the reins of their life must be given over to you. 
God, I pray that by that still, small voice of the Spirit, you would call their name, gather sheep not yet of this fold. May Christ receive all the glory. I, I pray, Lord, that as partnerships are established, as relationships are created, even this morning through sponsorship, that you would do great and mighty things, greater works than even those described in Daniel's testimony this morning. God, move among us, we pray in Jesus' name.